Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. In this episode, we start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds this week in the world of romance. Today, we talk about Hollywood stories about sex, the news that comes out in the industry, and the types of sex that we see on screen. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today we'll be talking about Giovanni's Room, the 1956 novel by James Baldwin about an ill-fated affair between an American in Paris and a very sexy Italian. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. Let's just say, if you charge Chris $11 for a sandwich, you should prepare to die. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. In this episode in particular, we quote excerpts of Baldwin's writing that contain outdated language now considered offensive to refer to black people. Please listen with care. Finally, this week, we had a minor technical issue with one of our microphones. So our apologies in advance for that. And thank you for bearing with us. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. We are obsessed with romance when when it's nice. Often it's heterosexual, often it's pretty people, and we love seeing people hold hands on the red carpet. We love seeing kind of these, these images of well-adjusted, stable relationships. And then whenever sex comes to the conversation, it's bad, right? It's assault. It's a, a rape story. It's And I was thinking, I was kind of thinking about that, how in American movies now, especially American Hollywood movies, there's almost no sex at all, right? It's become more and more sanitized. You might have one big kiss and that's it, which feels mm. strangely like kind of a throwback to the 1920s, 1930s. So I wanted to kind of throw out here this idea that we've come to a point where despite social media's best efforts, right? Despite the fact that we are supposed to be so much more enlightened, right? So much more modern about how we talk about sex, how we talk about relationships, how we talk about the ins and outs of that. It still feels to me, and again, this is very American, and I'm curious, Chris, what you think with kind of maybe British media landscape. It feels like we're really kind of falling into, if sex comes into the conversation, it's bad, it's dirty, it's gross, it's 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 a crime almost, and we only really talk about love in terms of a man, a woman, they got married, they have kids, or if they're not married, it's a long-term partnership. And those are kind of the two weird binary polar opposites that we've established. Yeah, there's like the the jump cut, which happens. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it makes it, and I know we've talked about this before on the podcast and also just individually in conversation, but it feels so strange in 2023 that when it comes to adults talking about having sex, it's still taboo. It's still something that's a bit filthy, right? Can we only bring it to the limelight or to the fore when there's a criminal trial, right? When there's something really bad happening. And even if that's not the intent, even if that's not maybe the the most visible message, 
inadvertently, I think, it really solidifies this idea that talking about sex, having sex, if not bad, maybe don't talk about it in polite company. So I've read a lot about the implementation of the Hayes Code in 1934. Uh, and so when you hear about like pre-code Hollywood movies and post-code Hollywood movies, this is the code they're referring to. And there was a lot of buildup to that. A lot of it was just maintaining markets, really. So, so, sorry, um, I don't know what the Hayes Code is. So this is the code that set standards for Hollywood studios in terms of what content could and couldn't be shown on screen. It was a strange thing because it was like a self-regulation thing because they didn't want to get films banned from particular states and uh, especially southern states. So showing things like mixed race couples would automatically get your film not shown and often banned by, you know, local or state governments, particularly in the South. So that was something that could have unspoken code for a while and then, you know, later kind of formalized. Part of that was as well People, uh, couples, even married couples sleeping in separate beds. Mm -hmm. This was because of the British market, which was a huge export market for Americans. They wouldn't import any film that had couples sleeping in double beds because uh, couples sleep in double beds. Sorry. <laughs> Chris, you've been abroad too long. We know that you keep saying that people in England have sex. We don't believe it. <laughs> we want proof. <laughs> I direct you to Prince Harry's memoirs. <laughs> Yeah, we don't know what you're doing with your Todgers, but right. <laughs> it's not a, it's in twin beds. So there are all of these things about how long couples can kiss on screen, all of this. It really, uh, really, really, I don't even want to use the word sanitized, but it really changed the nature of movie romance, movie love. You know, you, you wouldn't show, you know, if a woman left her husband in a film, it always had to be a tragedy, for example. It could never be a comedy where then she was just happy. I think this is so fascinating in the way in which capitalism effectively kind of like creating a morality or kind of perpetuating a morality because the reason that it exists is so that they can sell the films. It's not because they have... No, they these did not have these morals. Themselves. Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. This was a thousand percent for the foreign markets. It continues throughout the 30s and the 40s. The Hollywood studio gets more decentralized by the 50s. But at this point, too, society is so much more conservative than it had been because of the wealth of the war. And there's a correlation between, you know, the gross income. And I'm so, I'm so, so good at celebrity gossip. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know, this is just my catnip. I'm, I'm really like chin and, you know. Conservatism and uh, and income, uh, average household income. And uh, in the 1950s, that had happened. There was uh, the war had brought up a lot of stuff that affected America that they didn't want to deal with, including, for example, the fact that so much of the army had been black, but wasn't benefiting from the GI Bill. So there were all of these things that were very much unspoken and just isn't everything perfect now. Nobody ever has premarital sex, you know, this and that. Um, 60s and 70s, especially late 60s, 70s, start to see a backlash of this. But it really comes out in an in interest in foreign films and the develop of the American porn industry. And so instead of having, you know, just like, oh, isn't sex nice? Isn't this, you know, part of, you know, the story between people sometimes, whether it's nice or not? Um, you often get these really dark European art house films like Last Tango in Paris, mm -hmm. or uh, one that I referenced that we may have cut, which is uh, The Night Porter, which is a very dark film as well. So it, 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 you have these periods of, you know, of people of having sex be more commercial and less commercial. I wonder too, just recently, 
with the advent of Pornhub and the wide availability, OnlyFans, of streaming services, of online access to, you know, sexual imagery, Mm -hmm. uh, how much we need slash want that in films anymore, particularly as I think America's having this moment that's, I hope it's a moment, but going through a period of relative chaos, like high divide, all of this, where perhaps what we want from entertainment is just much more traditional and less uh, provocative. Because I'd argue that what the media picks up in terms of stories, uh, separately from what's shown in films, has always been about negative sex stuff. The media stories are never like, look at these two people having amazing sex. But I I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit and the the idea of this was the hazing thing was a a lot to do with the foreign markets and markets within the states correct yeah yeah it's haze h-a-y-s but i like that you called it the hazing (laughs) 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 understood well i just i wonder like as um maybe the domestic market for like u.s cinema is shrinking slightly and they're looking more and more to other foreign markets which are potentially more conservative than necessarily Western ones, whether that's the same thing which is happening again now. And then that interesting thing... Yeah, because China and the East. Yeah, yeah. The East, what am I... Yeah, I'm red your tippling. (laughs) China and other parts of Asia. But then there's an interesting thing that there's a sort of becomes like a feedback thing going on in which like they're making these more conservative films in order to sell to foreign markets which have more conservative buyers and that in itself is reflecting on kind of like western culture and making it more conservative within itself i don't know if that's... so it becomes like a feedback loop yeah, yeah yeah that's really i i i agree with you and i think that's really interesting and i think i think also on top of that I, what puzzles me and perturbs me i guess is that we make art about so many other aspects of how we live our lives. Mm. And somehow again and again, we just skip over sex as if it's just, oh, momentary blip in your life and you move on. Well, we've relegated it to a separate kind of dirty. And it's the same in writing too, right? How many books have you read that are considered great literature, that are considered good fiction, that have sex scenes in them? And if they're tragedies, they're literature. Anna Karenina, which is a book which has so much unspoken sex in it and i think anna karenina is a fantastic book like but how much better could it have been if tolstoy had been able because of the the social times to be able to put the sex in um i'm suggesting any right it's out of copyright i suggest an anna karenina plus sex scenes (laughs) If anyone feels up to the task who's listening, then go. We're starting a franchise instead of everything classic plus zombies. It's now everything classic plus. I love it. I, love I it. actually think that that would have a, like a, that has a genuine kind of like literary merit. To it. Well, then maybe we should cut this and actually make it happen. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice plus sex. <laughs> so I want to now play devil's advocate to my own idea, which is which is you, Gemini. <laughs> I know classic because I was also thinking when you were talking about um, I'm going to get the decade wrong, but let's say like 30s, 40s movies, and correct me, if, uh, Rachel. Um, but I was thinking that because you weren't allowed to show so many things explicitly, it made the I think it made filmmakers really creative about 
how to imply that sex was happening and kind of how to show romance and how to show sensuality. And I think same for literature as well. So I'm also not... I'm not saying that now I need every single book, every single movie to have like an intense like blowjob scene where I see every single fucking vein in the dick and then I'm like the mouth is right there. Like <laughs> that there could be variety, right? There could be a diversity of how we tell stories. And and I do think in the US we are really, really settling into this. I know everyone says this about the US and it's become such a cliche about how puritanical we are, but we really fucking are. <laughs> it's getting ridiculous. And even with things like OnlyFans where a lot of celebrities now have accounts, and we saw in the last few years sex workers being like, are you fucking kidding me? We have so few revenue streams as as is. You're a fucking celebrity. Go put on a concert. Um, so we're, we are so behind when it comes to talking about sex work in a way that isn't just moralizing and demoralizing, frankly, and making it just seem like it's the worst possible thing ever. It's only for fallen people. But so we can't talk about it in terms of labor. We're not willing to discuss it when it comes to art. We're basically creating a, a society in a world where sex is quite literally behind the bedroom door. And and God forbid you have any sort of king. God forbid that you engage in anything that, again, is not a man, a woman, and, you know, you have sex for 15 Sorry, I want, I want to disagree with this ever so slightly, mm -hmm. which is that I think that it can be discussed, but it has to be discussed really directly whenever it is being because I think there is um any number of books which mm. might be about this this subject or you know about people having kinks or directly about sex but what it doesn't exist in is books or movies which are just about life in general it's not an incidental thing it's been again and I, I guess I'm just on my kind of capitalist kick is that it's anti-capitalist kick it's been kind of like specifically kind of commercialized in that like if you're going to talk about sex then that's the thing which is selling the product whereas it's not allowed to just be this incidental aspect of life or love yeah, that's right. Whereas uh, other uh, pleasures that are less stigmatized, like say eating or drinking, mm -hmm. you know, and are also just bodily actions, you know, uh, would appear in all kinds of literature. And yet it's the same thing. You, the, you do often get often explicit sex scenes in literary fiction, but usually tragic ones, mm -hmm. you know, usually, usually ones with tragic endings. And it's the opposite of a happy ending. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess I, I guess I'd say that it seems like capitalism cyclical in some sense. And I'm not an economist. <laughs> but with that in mind, hopefully we'll have kind of our 60s renaissance sometime soon and start embracing what's counter mainstream cultural uh, and get kind of, you know, the summer of love and but less horrible to women and people who are not straight cis men yes <laughs> we don't ask for much <laughs>And now it's time for The Love Story. This week we'll be discussing 1956's Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And I'd like to begin with a, a quote that just really ties it all back to this podcast, which is, of course, what Baldwin would have wanted. <laughs> Americans should never come to Europe. It means they can never be happy again. What's the good of an American who isn't happy? Happiness was all we had. 
So we're going to be diving into this and other issues. Hold on to your hats. First, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with this book. So tell me about how you came across it, when you first read it, what your reactions were, if and how they've changed. I think this might be maybe the fifth or the sixth time I've read this book. I think I first read it in early college and weirdly... Because usually when I've reread a book this many times, it's because I took a class on it or was part of a lot of syllabi. I don't think I've ever taken a class that had this on the syllabus or as part of the curriculum. I came across it because everyone talked about it, of course. And it's a book that I come back to again and again. Uh, the quote that Rachel just gave us is just one in a series of, to me, at least magnificent sentences. And I know we'll get into that in the book, but um, every time I read it... Um, it speaks to me in a different way. And reading it again for this episode, it struck me in a way that I hadn't expected because it really spoke to a lot of the, let's say, the worries I've been having recently. And I think that it's one of the few books, at least that I've read, where every time I read it, not only do I get older, of course, and thus I have a different perspective on it, it seems to actually address something new that I think I've discovered in my life. Even though I've read the book so many times and you would think, oh, of course I knew that it talked about that. But this time around, Something completely different popped out at me in a way that it hadn't before in my other readings. Um, I fucking love this book. Um, okay, so this was actually the first time that I'd read Giovanni's Room. Um, love that. It was for me too. <laughs> and in fact, my <laughs> the first time I heard about Giovanni's Room was actually when I was in a uh, a relationship in university, and um, it was in the kind of the, the early stages of the relationship, you know, where you're spending a lot of time with one another in and in, in each other's rooms. And, and you said, how do you see this ending up? And she said, read this book. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, it, I was more ignorant than that. Uh, it was, it was very, it was very messy in my room and we'd been, you know, spending kind of day after day in there. And uh, she went, Oh God, you know, it feels like Giovanni's room in here. Okay, I love this person. <laughs> and you were like, who's Giovanni? And how can I murder him? <laughs> exactly. I was like, who's Giovanni? So yeah, that was that was how I f found out about Giovanni's room. First thought he was a rival, then you realized <laughs> he's a hero. <laughs> well, I read it for this podcast. It's a title that I've known for a long time. My mother taught Baldwin a lot in her uh, college courses, but I'd never picked it up uh, with a lot of the books my mother taught that was the case because you just thought this is going to lead to a lot of heavy discussions around the dinner table. <laughs> and you know what? It would have. <laughs> but I read it for this podcast and I am so glad that I did. So we're going to be talking in depth. But for the moment, I want to just give a little background on James Baldwin. He grew up in Harlem. He was born in 1924. He never knew his father. So he had his mother's last name, which made him James Jones, which is very lucky that she remarried because James Jones was also a novelist in the 1940s and 50s. So you know what? Good move, except that uh, the David Baldwin, who his mother married, was horrible. James was three years old uh, and this man came into his life. He was a Baptist preacher and laborer. He had he was much older. His mother, who lived with him for a while, had actually been enslaved. And so James grew up with 
this extended family and then the new children that his mother and his stepfather had, even though he never referred to him as his stepfather. He always referred to him as his father. But they had a really tense relationship that was really pretty horrible. Um, they had arguments and even actual fights about morals, about James's intellectual pursuits, about uh, his white friends. Uh, it's interesting that Harlem at this time was not known as a particularly black area. It was, uh, there were a lot of tenements in there with poor white people as well. It was known just as a more poor area without regard to race as much as it would become associated later with the Harlem Renaissance and, uh, and afterwards. So James went to public school 24 in Harlem. The principal of the school was named Gertrude E. Ayer. She was the first black principal in the city. And she recognized his talent, as his teachers did. Um, by Gertrude's can always recognize talent. <laughs> <laughs> Gertie, we love you. Um, and by fifth grade, he's reading Dostoevsky. He's read um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. He's won Dickens. Uh, especially Dostoevsky and Dickens will have big places in his heart moving forward. He wins prizes for you know essays and things he writes. At one point, he writes a song and sends it to LaGuardia, the mayor. He gets a personal <laughs> letter back from LaGuardia. His stepfather died on James's 19th birthday. I have conflicting facts here. So I have that he had to leave school at age 17 to help support his family. I suppose then when he was 19 and his stepfather died, he was fully taking over as the main support because I, I imagine that Baptist preacher slash laborer is not a highly paid, you know, a combination of careers anyway. And so as soon as he was old enough, he was working to support his family. He did various art odd jobs. He did some building for the army that involved working with a lot of white men from the South who were absolutely horrible to him in a way that even in 1920s, 30s, New York, he hadn't experienced as much. He knew he was attracted to men when he was a teenager and tried to lose himself in religion. In his essay, uh, Down at the Cross, he writes that the church uh, was, a was a mask for self-hatred and despair. Salvation stopped at the church door. And he'll deal with that and the role of particular religions within the Black community in Harlem, especially uh, in his writings later on. But he had a very conflicted relationship with it. He fell in love with a man who was publicly straight. He was a Black man named Eugene Worth. Uh, with because of Worth, who was a member of a young communist group, <laughs> Baldwin briefly became a Trotskyite. Uh -huh. um, and uh, sadly, later, Worth then died by suicide. He meets Marlon Brando at the new school in a theater class. He's a Leo. Of course, he takes a theater class. <laughs> and they become good friends. Life so like before either of them are famous? Before either of them are famous. Yeah, this is still in the 1940s. Um <laughs> And, you know, he's writing essays and reviews in particular for The New Leader, but also for lots of other uh, journals and magazines, and is writing at this time. But by 1948, he's decided to make a break with America, and he comes to France. He comes with $1,500, which uh, now is about $17,000 from a fellowship. But he was always very poor in France. Even the books that he did have published didn't make him a lot of money, especially immediately in the 1950s. We've talked a lot about the reasons that Paris was appealing to Black Americans at this time. And these are a lot of the reasons that Baldwin publicly cited for wanting to come here. There were a lot of reasons that he gave at different points in his life. Some of them were about um, sex and puritanicalism, pur puritanism in mm -hmm. the States. Some of them were about hostility that he felt as a Black man. 
And a lot of the reasons in the end would come back to race and class. In an essay, The Discovery of What It Means to Be an American in 1959, he wrote, I left America because I doubted my ability to survive the fury of the color problem here. Sometimes I still do. I wanted to present, prevent myself from becoming merely a Negro, or even merely a Negro writer. I wanted to find out in what way the specialness of my experience could be made to connect me with other people instead of dividing them me from them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a little bit more nuanced than the you know, the discussions that we've been having in terms of this idea of having a big talent, recognizing that you have a big talent, but recognizing as well that it's never going to be recognized in the place that you are. What can you say? The guy was a genius writer. He knew how to. Um, I mean, I'm sure that if Miles Davis or Josephine Baker's skill had been writing, then uh, they'd have said something like that as well. But um, he could express himself. He was good with words. Uh, So he's in this left bank scene, and he's a key figure in it, especially in the first years that he's there. He ends up spending nine years in Saint-Germain-de-Prés, which we've talked about before. He's, again, he doesn't have a lot of money. $15,000 today would not be enough to get you through a year in Paris except living extremely frugally, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but uh, he, so he, he bounced around a lot living with friends and when he could afford it, living in hotels. Uh, he became friends with Sartre, de Beauvoir, Max Ernst, Truman Capote. Mm-hmm. Um, according to his friend and uh, eventual biographer David Leeming, he seemed at ease in his Paris life. Jimmy Baldwin, the aesthete and lover, reveled in the Saint-Germain ambiance. And he himself wrote later, I was born in New York, but have only lived in pockets of it. In Paris, I lived in all parts of the city, on the right bank and the left, among the bourgeoisie and among les miserables. <laughs> and I knew all kinds of people from pimps and prostitutes in Pigalle to, to Egyptian bankers in Noyi. This may sound extremely unprincipled or even obscenely obscurely immoral. I found it healthy. I love to talk to people, all kinds of people, and almost everyone, as I hope we still know, loves a man who loves to listen. So yeah, he's got away with words. (laughs) Yeah. And also like a really, I don't know, complicated and nuanced desire for himself because when we've talked about Josephine Baker when we've talked about Miles Davis first of all they're they're famous really bifurcated right they're far more famous either in France or in the US where it seems like Baldwin what he aspired to was uh, not even invisibility in maybe the ways we've talked about with other people but a visibility as just his essence right uh, like as close as you can get to almost being raceless which at that time and unfortunately still now it seems to be equal to white, right? Well, this is a, the Hannah Gadsby's term for white men, straight white men, is human neutral. Right. You know, where it's just, it's not considered, you don't get adjectives attached to your name or your your identity, really. Um, yeah, and I want to get into that a lot more when we talk about his choice of uh, narrator and uh, principal characters within this book. Um He's incredibly prolific. He's writing a lot at this time. At this point, for the first two years, he is in a really intense love affair with a Swiss boy called Lucien Hopsberger, who's 17 at the time of their first meeting. They remained friends for the next 39 years. Baldwin, uh, especially right after they broke up romantically, had a lot of really intense feelings that didn't immediately dissipate. I wonder what that feels like. Um, there's a, little, a bizarre little anecdote where in 1949, Baldwin gets arrested in Paris because his friend has come to stay like in a adjoining room in a room down the hall at a hotel. Um, and for some reason, this friend 
this hotel never changed sheets. And so when the friend arrives, Baldwin was like, <laughs> give me some of your sheets. And so he takes some sheets and puts them on his bed. And then like a, weeks, months later, the, the he sees the police in his friend's room and he comes in and they're talking and he's not nervous. He writes in this essay that he's not, you know, he's very jovial that, uh, you know, he doesn't feel particularly singled out. But eventually they, they come back, you know, talking to his room and one of the cops pulls up the sheet and there's red embroidery like from the hotel. And so they arrested him for possession of stolen goods. And he's like, as they're leaving, like as they're leaving, he goes, is this serious? And the cop's like, not that serious. And Baldwin's like, but I forgot that it was France. So I was in jail for eight days (laughs) because of bureaucracy. Um, And so he wrote this essay about this experience called Equal in Paris. And he was really writing about how in Paris, even in this situation, he wasn't what he called a despised black man, but simply an American. He was no different from the white American friend who had actually stolen the sheet. (laughs) And uh, there's a a great quote that he writes, because I think we've talked a lot about Paris as a place that's less problematic than America racially, but it has its own nuances and difficulties. So he writes to me about... uh, He writes to me. (laughs) He writes... In this essay. Dear Rachel. <laughs> Jimmy here. <laughs> he writes in this essay about uh, the questioning that he went through at the commissariat. He says, It was quite clear to me that the Frenchmen in whose hands I found myself were no better or worse than their American counterparts. Certainly their uniforms frightened me quite as much, and the impersonality and the threat, always very keenly felt by the poor, of violence was as present in that commissariat as it had ever been for me in any police station. And I had seen, for example, what Paris policemen could do to Arab peanut vendors. The only difference here was that I did not understand these people, did not know what techniques their cruelty took, did not know enough about their personalities to see danger coming— to ward it off, did not know on what ground to meet it. That evening in the commissariat, I was not a despised black man. They would simply have, have laughed at me if I had behaved like one. For them, I was an American, and it was they who had the advantage. For that word, American, gave them some idea, far from inaccurate, of what to expect from me. So, That's such a good piece of writing. Yeah. I mean, regardless of anything else, like about what it's saying, or anything, like it's so fucking precise it's so hard to be that precise in writing that it, and he's just he's captured so much that literally like shivers that i get like that somebody can write that well like and not oh, yeah. really the word right precision it's that it's that frustrating that frustrating feeling that i feel like i always have when i'm writing or speaking i know what i want to say but and you kind of talk around and around around the idea every time i read something by baldwin it's just he found the pure essence of every single idea, put it into a sentence and was like, is this what you mean? And it's like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. God, <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> you covered it. So uh, from by the mid 50s, his friends had kind of gone from being this group of white artists and bohemians around to being a lot of black American expats. Uh, it was at this point that he became friends with Maya Angelou, for example, mm-hmm. and He decides in advance that he's going to return to America in 1957, where he goes and befriends Norman Mailer and his wife, Adele, who I'd like to remind you, Norman Mailer stabbed almost to death in 1960. I was going to say Norman Mailer. He's a bad influence. For which he received three years probation. Uh, Baldwin got eight days for those fucking blankets. (laughs) (laughs) So he's going through tumultuous times with his 
own love life. In 1956, a relationship with a musician ended. He overdosed on pills, but immediately regretted it, called a friend, and the friend helped him purge. Um, by 1962, so he does go back to the States. He does a lot of work with the civil rights movement. He does a lot of speech. He makes a lot of speeches. And he's still really connected to the Black American community in uh, in Paris, and he still has really conflicted relationships about the United States. And so he, he eventually ends up with an FBI file of 108, uh, sorry, 1,184 pages, which is a feat to, in comparison, uh, there are 110 pages in Truman Capote's file. And let's see, just nine pages on Henry Miller. Okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so, oh no, some of those pages must have gotten lost. <laughs> Nine pages? They couldn't even get to double digits? Okay. <laughs> it says likes fucking. Yeah. <laughs> so he was neither in the closet nor open to the public about his sexuality. Uh, none of their fucking business. And really, uh, he writes... Two uh, novels, Giovanni's Room Just Above My Head, with openly gay characters and relationships, but he didn't openly state uh, his sexuality. So, so he wrote Giovanni's Room while he was in the States? No, he wrote it here in France. Oh, sorry. Right. Friends with a lot of other famous people, particularly, again, in the civil rights movement, from Nina Simone, Langston Hughes, Lorraine Hansberry, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Miles Davis. You might have heard of him. <laughs> Was friends with Langston Hughes, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, certainly friendly colleagues. Okay, I don't okay. I don't know the details of okay. their relationship. But he's decided to spend his later life in France. So by 1970, he comes back to live in Saint-Paul-de-Vence in the Provence-Côte d'Azur region. He was made a commandeur de la Légion d'honneur in 1986, and he died in 1987. But he's buried near New York City. So with that in mind, I want to go into some context on this book in particular. Giovanni's Room comes in 1956. It's his second novel and his third book. So his first book comes out when he's 28 in 1953, Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's semi-autobiographical and particularly examines the relationship between members of the community and the Pentecostal church in Black Life in Harlem. And then in 1956, he has Giovanni's Room. in. In addition to this, he also has lots of essays and essay collections. He's already published Notes on a Native Son in 1955. So he's fairly well established, but with two books out, he's kind of still this burgeoning talent and uh, eventually will go on to write six novels altogether and eight essay collections. He later recalled that he was inspired for this book. When we all met in a bar, there was a blonde French guy sitting at a table. He bought us drinks. And two or three days later, I saw his face in the headlines of a Paris paper. He'd been arrested and was later guillotined. That stuck in my mind, mm. as it would. So doing a really quick summary, this book is very short, so I really do recommend that you read it rather than in addition to listening to our sexy spark notes. Mm -hmm. um, it's told in the first person by David, who's a white American in his late 20s, who's in the south of France. He was living in Paris, where he proposed to his girlfriend, Hella, and had an affair with Giovanni. Now we know that Hella's returning to the U U.S., and Giovanni's going to be guillotined. David is thinking back on his past about a boy he had, had an affair with as a teenager in Brooklyn, and then who he later bullied this boy, and questions if he's kind of been running from this moment all of his life. 
His mother died when he was five. He grew up with his father and his aunt Ellen. Ellen was very controlling. Father was alcohol. Was his his father uh, had an addiction to alcohol? Yeah, had had alcoholism. I th- is I think the kind of the current. But I think I mean. Not to, I, I don't think his father is really an alcoholic. I was going to say that whatever. Well, it's I, very much like in the day. Yeah, I don't want to interrupt the summary because I think it's really important. But it's true that there's kind of, to me at least, there's a little bit of a mystery as to what exactly is, big air quotes, wrong with his father and thus wrong with their relationship. Yeah. Yes, there's the drinking, but because his memories, his childhood is so. You know, he, he. it's not like people talked openly about things. A lot of it's what he overheard, what he remembers feeling. And he was so miserable for a lot of it that that seems to really cloud any sort of clarity as to what he really sees. But that actually makes it so unsettling, right? Yeah. I mean, in my mind, his father's just like a bit of a good time guy. I don't think he's an alcoholic. And also grief stricken. I think also yeah. there's a, I definitely get the sense that he never was able to kind of have an outlet for his grief except through drinking. And I do think that Baldwin himself it would have rejected any clear labeling of uh, diseases, of mental illnesses, the way that he rejects all sorts of language within this book, within the narrative. Mm-hmm. The, the, I should say the narrative voice rejects these these labels. Um, and a lot of the book takes place in all sorts of gray zones that we're going to mm-hmm. talk about. So David is in Paris. He's I don't want to use the word poor, but he is broke. So when he arrives, he calls Jacques, this businessman he knows, for money. Jacques's a gay man who's kind of known for buying, you know, friendship, a companionship, and it's implied sex. From young boys, from young pretty boys. And together they go to a gay bar that a man called Guillaume owns, who is an older gay man uh, who's created the space for gay men. Guillaume's also, uh, like, a member of an aristocratic French family. Right. And the last of the line. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that will be important later. But there's a new bartender, Giovanni, and he is sharp as a fucking tack. And he likes <laughs> David. He's beautiful. They discuss culture and... He's one of the, I'd say, one of the instantly most sexy people in literature that I'm aware of. <laughs> like, you just, you, and it's really subtly dumb because I don't think there's anything which ever he describes Giovanni's appearance particularly. No, well, you, but you know what's funny is that I did wonder a little bit if he what if he worried if Baldwin worried about that because if you remember later, like towards the end of the book, Hella's Hella says he's really beautiful. Like he has a very beautiful face, as if to confirm. No, seriously. <laughs> I've got a feeling that David is a bit of a catch as well. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, David's a little bit unsure about that, though. Um, he's also really stands. I mean, I don't think David's a catch. Just to <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you in advance, he's not part of the Mary Fuck Kill because it's just too easy. But he's he's sitting there, especially before he meets Giovanni, just really judging the men in the bar so harshly, and I would. Warn readers too that like this section can be very upsetting in its characterization of gay men. Um, Jock's kind of teasing Giovanni and uh, and David. David responds to this by just having the impulse to go pick up a girl, but instead he gets really drunk, um, which is the Paris solution. <laughs> At five a.m., <laughs> the four of them go to Leal together. And he's David's like, oh, I should really tell Giovanni, like, I'm straight, dude. Like, this, you know, this isn't going to happen. But somehow he never quite gets There's a bit where he says that he's, uh, they ask him if he's he's queer, and he says, yeah, I'm queer for girls. Yeah. The younger men stay together and eat oysters while the older men are kind of trying to pick up 
people at this strange open at five in the morning oyster bar owned by Madame Clotilde. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I think that you and me might have very different opinions in this bar. I love the sound of this bar. I want to go to it. Here's the thing. I love the sound of the bar. Don't get me wrong. But what I was thinking was after like, I'm going to say conservatively nine to 25 hours of drinking, the last thing I want to have for breakfast is oysters and white wine. The bar itself, I so want to fucking go. And oh my God, his description of the the usual, the, the woman who usually is the barkeep of these places, like chef's kiss, chef's kiss. It's so fucking gorgeously written. It's astounding. But I don't want oysters after 30 million hours of drinking. <laughs> also, book. those oysters have been sitting there since yesterday morning at best. Within the book, though, he's like... Uh... Oysters and white wine are the only thing to have and drink after a night like this. And if Giovanni said that to me, I would go, mm-hmm, and I would just somehow get them down. <laughs> so at this point, we understand that Giovanni is really dependent on Guillaume financially. Guillaume, again, is his employer, but has also, you know, kind of helped him along. They, David accompanies him to his apartment. Giovanni kind of insists that he come in and insists that he go with him, but it, David doesn't take much. You mean Giovanni's room? Yes, they go to Giovanni's room. Wait. But we don't have a description of it at this point in the text. And uh, he he seduces him, by which I mean he pushes him down on the bed and is like, let's get on with this. And David's incapable of saying no, but he also feels like it's kind of a relief right. not to have to say no. Um, back in the present, he is in the south of France again. The caretaker of the house comes to check on his rooms, and she's asking a lot about his girlfriend. And you know, are you going to? Oh, you should be married. You need to pray. He gets a really mother. We're still waiting for Giovanni to be guillotined in this present, right? right. Yeah. Um, and feels he feels like she's very motherly, and he almost like wants her forgiveness uh, in some way, but can't ask for it. He is thinking back to Giovanni's room and Giovanni dying. So in the flashback, we have. Have him moving into Giovanni's room, which we get the description here, and it is delicious. It is so cluttered and small. I would have thought it was a chambre de bonne, and I think it is a maid's room, but it's on the ground floor because it's yeah. they have mm. to soap up the windows mm-hmm. to keep uh, people from seeing in. It's also uh, it's near Nation. Um, which is a kind of like a first shout out for Nation in this podcast, I think. Like, right, that's true. There are other parts of Paris apart from Montparnasse. But but in the book, they talk about it like it's Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, by the zoo? <laughs> You're saying, is that by the zoo? It's not that close to the zoo. Um, it's just east. And at the same time, uh, there's... He, he finally tells Giovanni about Hella, and these tensions start to emerge on both sides of the relationship. There, it's really love-hate on David's end, and you can really feel Giovanni picking up on that and especially dreading when Hella is going to come back into town. Hella at this point is in Spain considering David's proposal. Uh, and then one day he gets two letters. He, David's father wants him to come home. And I was also prying a little bit, like, why aren't you coming home? If it's because of a girl, you can just bring the girl. It doesn't matter who, you know, all of this. And Hella, meanwhile, accepts his proposal. Uh, he, in guilt, I assume, goes down to Montparnasse, sorry, Chris, and uh, <laughs> picks up a random acquaintance, Sue, and has sex with her. Feels like he was taking advantage of her loneliness. In what is, I think, one of the grimmest sex scenes. So fucking grim. Right. It's so fucking grim. And when he gets home, Giovanni's had a horrible day. Guillaume accused him of stealing and being a bastard. And when Giovanni attacked him, he got thrown out and fired. And uh, David feels like he's more of a burden than ever, which is already, I think, what Giovanni fears. Because in part, he's. it seems the implication is that he's fired because 
Guillaume knows that he can't have him anymore, right? Yes. Because he's saying, I'm in a couple, you know, I have a part. So it's a little bit, it is because of David that he got fired in a way, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the present, we have David for the first time to anyone admitting that he loved Giovanni at that point. Um, Again, in flashback, Giovanni is renovating the house. This is always his big, renovating the room. This is always his big project. He's trying to make a a built-in bookcase, which Giovanni, I get it. I totally. I get it. (laughs) All of his choices, I totally understood. And me too, I would start. And that was, that's what movie I'd end up living in. (laughs) Well, will a built-in bookcase make you stay? Because I could make that. It's funny because... Because this book is, in some ways, it's very, like, not hyper-stylized exactly, but it's this kind of, like, is there's something kind of mythic about it. But at the same time, there are these moments of just extreme normalcy. And I think, especially in the conversations that people have, they seem like real conversations. And the built-in bookcase thing just seems really normal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm building a <laughs> I know so many people <laughs> have done shit like that. And so Giovanni's really suspicious and like really fears that David's going to leave him and David is going to leave him, but it's like trying to reassure him at the same time that he knows that this is going to happen once Hella comes. And then Hella comes and Giovanni just, sorry, David just spends three days with her away from the apartment without telling anybody anything. David is so bad at communication. He's the absolute worst. <laughs> I mean, this might be one of the few times that you, we've met a character who's bad at communication because he's so stifled by self-hate. Like, it really seems like it's just stopped up any sort of outward articulation or movement. I mean, he just hates everybody, but no one more than himself. That's it. And he hates everybody because of himself. Like exactly. that's Yeah. Um, and until finally that he takes Hella to a bookstore and they bump into Jacques and then Giovanni. And Giovanni is mad. Hella obviously picks up on something. Hella's really sharp and is... <laughs> I could not be saying that sarcastic. She's really sharp, but not as sharp as she should be. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, why was that guy so mad at you? And David's like, oh, he just like broke up with his mistress and lost his job. And then like kind of gets like, I think he might have a thing for me, kind of. And I think actually she's the one who's like, he's obviously in love with you. He's like, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's like, oh. Exactly. When he yeah. keeps going like, yeah, I'm kind of in, I, um, <clears throat> yeah, like in love with Jim. Giovanni. He literally says that he says, I mean, I loved him. I mean, like, it's not a big deal. Like, not like, you know, no homo. <laughs> well, he doesn't say no homo, though. Like. No. No, I want to be very clear. Baldwin did not come up with that phrase. <laughs> um, sorry. We'd be very, very clear. <laughs> That's not what Baldwin did. But basically, yeah, but basically everything that David says to Hell is like, no homo. Like, you know, like I'm so great. <laughs> and I was like, isn't it nice to be so happy with this straight man here in bed with me? <laughs> so the next night, David, who said, like, oh, I'm going to come back to the bookstore and like we'll go get a drink in the area and just leaves again. It's the next night he goes to Giovanni and Giovanni is understandably super upset. He wakes him up. David is wasted. He comes at like, you know, the middle of the night. Fuck you. Yeah. And they have this really intense discussion where Giovanni's accusing him, you know, you're not capable of love. You're cruel. And his own story comes out that he was married in his Italian village to a woman who gave birth to a stillborn baby. And after that, he left and just left everything behind and moved to Paris. So they leave each other then. David is still making wedding plans with Hella. Uh, Giovanni starts going around with Jacques and then starts going around with poor boys from the area. Eventually, David hasn't seen him in a while, asks for news of him from a friend. It turns out he went back to Guillaume's. But after a week, Guillaume is found strangled in his bar with his dressing gown sash. 
I think that's symbolism. Um, the papers really emphasize the like noble roots that Guillaume's family has mm-hmm. while making Giovanni out to be almost like a gangster. Again, this is a first-person narrative, so keep that in mind. Giovanni is on the run, but after a while is found, pleads guilty, and is sentenced to death. Uh, Hella realizes that David's sad for his friend, but she's also a little bit like, don't you think you're a little too sad? Like, mm-hmm. isn't this a lot now, though? And finally, he just he's like, we got to go south. We gotta go. He's like, well, I loved him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you really loved him? Yeah, I loved him. No, no homo, but in a sad <laughs> Like, as a friend. And there, things really fall apart. Jacques is sending updates to David about uh, Giovanni's upcoming execution. And Hella at this point is just begging him to tell her whatever it is that is like, that it seems like at this point she knows on some level. There's- she keeps saying, you know, it seems like you feel like you're responsible for what happened to Giovanni. You are not guilty. You are not responsible. And I, you can just feel that every time she says that, even though that's obviously not her intent, it feels like she's just stabbing David again and again and again. And uh, eventually he leaves the house and he goes into the town and finds a sailor. And they are, after uh, assignation, they are drinking together at a bar. This is days later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, he is not good at leaving notes. Right. David's thing is, I'm going to go to the store. And then five weeks later, he comes up and he's like, hey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Hella sees him through the window of what's uh, coded as a gay bar. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm such a fucking idiot. I should have known. And packs up and leaves in a devastating breakup scene where you can tell she's trying to be understanding but really is having a hard time um escaping kind of the boundaries of her own personal experience which Mm -hmm. has been terrible not as terrible as giovanni's but pretty terrible um so we're back to the present david's about to leave for paris he's received a letter from jack with the date of giovanni's execution he's getting dressed he's thinking about his body which makes him think again about giovanni's execution he realizes he doesn't really understand his own body at all as he goes outside, he tears up the letter and throws it into the wind, which blows pieces back on him. So that's Giovanni's room. Um, okay, in the podcast, bye. <laughs> <laughs> the, so he sent it to Knopf, which was his publisher, who suggested that he burn the book because the theme, the theme of homosexuality, which I have issues with that phrase, uh, would alienate him from the Black readership they assumed was his primary audience. And again, this is very much how they were packaging him. This wasn't, you know, just a naturally occurring phenomenon. Um, They wrote to him, you cannot afford to alienate that audience. This new book will ruin your career because you're not writing about the same things in the same manner as you were before. And we won't publish this book as a favor to you. So it does get published by Dial Press in 1956. And actually, he had such a stellar reputation as a writer already that it came out to pretty positive reviews. There are some really weird later interpretations of it. Uh, Nathan A. Scott writes that Giovanni's room could be considered as a deflection, a kind of detour in Baldwin's career. He writes this in 67. Uh, very recently, Colm Toibin, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, um, of The New Yorker, says that, you know, of course, the writer of fiction creates a double, someone who shadows the writer in some ways and varies from the writer in others. And then Hilton Alls of The New York Times did this strange piece in 2019 where he has juxtaposed a reading of this book with 
fashion photos with designer clothing with a man, a white man and a black man in like suggestive positions in like a chic bare Paris room. Oh God. Yeah. And then it's like shirt, $200 the row. And you're just like, what is. Wow. Uh, fucking fashion. They're just, they they will do it. It's capitalism. It's capitalism. <laughs> but then, and then there was this whole like separate thing at the end about how the photographer and the writer had both dreamed about doing this for 10 years because they were both queer men and this spoke to them. And, you know, I was going, well, this is a separate interpretation through medium that I, mean, I don't think that is appropriate. And, you know, it's so disappointing too, because in, I can totally see why Hilton Alls would be your first choice if you're looking at the writers from The New Yorker because he's written, he's written a lot of... Oh, sorry, New York Times. Um, he's written so much about girlhood, femininity from kind of black femininity, white femininity. Like he's uh, what's the book that he wrote? The book of essays. Um, it'll come to me, but it's a it's an it's an incredible book with incredible essays. And, and he's really covered this topic in so many from so many other perspectives that it seems like what happened? <laughs> this is this is your thing. You you can do this. I think it's really the photographs that were jarring to me. I think it's just removing class from this was a very uh, removing class and then putting in like we want to sell you things was a strange choice. But I don't know if this is the the time to say it, but something that was really interesting to me about reading this book and having known about the book previously. I was expecting there to be, I know this is, uh, I know that the idea of our podcast is that it's all about love stories, but I was expecting there to be a little bit more of a love story within it. Um, the, the, I thought that there would be more romance between David and Giovanni, and I was hoping for like this, this room as, to at least temporarily exist as a kind of like a perfect space where they could they could be and express themselves. Giovanni wants that too. And it's not something that's available to him with David. And, well, I, I think that is that is true. But it, it was it was funny kind of like just reading it compared to my expectations of what it was going to be and what Giovanni's room yeah. represents. And so in some respects, I'm not totally surprised that that could be a, a place where people have gone with it because I think that almost in the kind of the popular imagination this i mean the notion of a private room in paris where anything can get done and anything is possible is extremely romantic and there's something which is this book is kind of like building off somewhat but i don't think i no, no i think it's not building off that actually sorry that's how people might have perceived it who maybe have read a kind of a brief synopsis of it because there's no romance that goes on in that room. Well, you know, and that also that makes me think too that you're right that if it was a private secluded room where they could, uh, you know, potentially be themselves without any sort of onlookers or bystanders, that'd be one thing. But actually one of the things that's so interesting is that is David's awareness of being watched by the community that he is so reluctantly a part of. So even when they're in that room, mm. it's like Jacques is right there, Guillaume is right there, all of the all of the boys that he's so disparaging about. I mean, potentially nobody nobody hates gay men more than David does. Nobody hates women more than David does. I mean, it's really astonishing just the groups that he hates. <laughs> well, I mean, and the room is packed to the gills with literal baggage. See yeah. last yeah. tango episode. <laughs> exactly. You know, and that is David's baggage even when it's not. <laughs> and I do want to talk a little bit about the way that complexities of identity and interpretation have worked into this because I do think that 
people pick up this book expecting it to be all sorts of things based on the synopsis. But actually, the one thing that critics focus on so much is the choice of using a white protagonist Mm -hmm. in this book, because David is white, Giovanni is Italian. And it's important to note that Italians were not, by many very bigoted and racist people in the States, considered to fully belong to the category of white, Mm -hmm. nor were they people of color. They were somewhere in between uh, in the early 20th century and uh, for some much later. But uh, I don't think that we can, in in any sense, say that that's representative or meant to uh, read as a person of color. He's from Italy. He's not Italian-American. So many interpretations of this book connect the first-person narrator. I think we get this a lot with books written by women and by people of color, especially when they're in first person, especially when that first person is in the exact same everything categorically as the writer of, you know, of wanting to psychologically interpret it in a particular way. Baldwin said some really complex things about race in this book. And so it's not just, I I had the urge to just say, you know, well, you know what, like he wanted to write a book about a white man, just let it be a, a white man. There's no particular reason. He says it's not that he wanted to be white. It's not that- well, Hold on, well, but was there because I think I read a quote from him saying that he felt that he couldn't tackle both race yes. and homosexuality in one book, so he felt that he had to choose one of them, and so he chose... Yes. The, qu- the quote is, I certainly could not possibly have, not at that point in my life, handled the other great weight, the Negro problem. The sexual moral light was a hard thing to deal with. I could not handle both propositions in the same book. There was no room for it. Because doesn't he later on write that he believes that sexuality and race... Uh, have to be discussed in tandem. It's interesting to see that evolution, I guess, right? That as a younger writer, that's what he thought he could do, perhaps, maybe in terms of his capabilities, but also in terms of the industry. But that seems to have really changed over the course of his lifetime, over his career. That's kind of cool to see that that progression, you know, especially at that point. Well, yeah, but I mean, what I would also say is that, like, this book is so tight. Like, this is like, it's one of the most perfect books Mm -hmm. that i think i've ever read in the same way almost that great gatsby has it's like there's almost not a word out of place Mm -hmm. and i can i can understand that because it's so perfect and because he's tackling so incisively this one issue that trying to tackle the the race issue as well on top of that might have made it a less perfect, less sort of like focused book because you've already got so many things about American identity, which is within it. And I mean, maybe not. Maybe he could have folded it it in. He did in some ways from the first page. There's a, a discussion of David's race, which is so interesting that he would call attention to it. Because again, I do think that the mentality of many people and many readers at this time would have been to assume that the narrator's a white man unless told otherwise, um, if they were unfamiliar with Baldwin and his own background. But uh, the quote is, my face is like a face you've seen many times. My ancestors conquered a continent, pushing across death-laden plains until they came to an ocean which faced away from Europe into a darker past. Mm -hmm. And he actually later thought that his book got turned down by a canal because yeah, the content, but also the fact that, in his words, he, he seemed uppity and taking on the white bohemian world, you know? And so it's almost like even when he just tried to narrow 
the overlap with his own life to one aspect. It's like it was still considered, you know, this doesn't belong to you in the same way that race does. He says in an interview later, the most difficult thing I did in Europe was to force myself to admit what the American Negro said to hide from himself as the price of his public progress, that I hated and feared white people. And the interviewer asks, you loved only Negroes the way some writers can only love poor people? What an interviewer. And uh, he says, no, it didn't mean I loved black people. There was much in them I despised because in doing so, I was really despising what I hated and myself. I really hated and feared the world. This meant that I gave the world too much power over me. And also I was not free to write the top of whatever talent I had. I faced all of these things in Europe in order to be free of them, or at least to know them. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of overlaps there with the issues that he's discussing in this book. So I don't want to say it's biographical in any way. I don't want to characterize his relationship with whiteness in here, but I did want to throw it out just as a topic of discussion. You know, how is whiteness presented in here? And can we separate it from Baldwin's own identity. Well, you know, it's really complicated in this book and something that I was really kind of focusing on in this reading because, of course, as you mentioned, that that uh, opening quote about how what David looks like. But in fact, this is a book about a character who can't feel like he's in a body and is trying so hard to kind of escape the strictures of a body. So before we can even get into race and all those things, it's like just being a human being in the world. And that's something that Giovanni often accuses him of, right? And that feels very linked to his critique, I think, about Americans, which is really interesting given what we've been talking about already, the sanitized state of being American, right? You, smiling. There's a lot of, you know, Giovanni making fun of him for just kind of smiling emptily. But this this idea of just, exactly, <laughs> just, you know, accruing wealth, uh, accruing nice looks, you know, small talk, but not actually being dirty, right? And Giovanni says at some point, you don't want to be with me because you feel like I'm making you dirty. I'm drawing you into filth, especially at this time, especially given that he was a black man, even though I know and I fully respect that James Baldwin did not want to be considered a black writer. He wanted to be considered a writer and hopefully a great writer. We're dealing with a, a person who's so at odds with himself that he literally can't be in himself, which is also, I think, why the, the trope of him being drunk constantly is really important, too. He's just trying to find ways to leave himself. It's also kind of what people do in Paris books. Right. No, that's true. But the way that he drinks is is terrifying, you know, even yeah. to himself sometimes. David, at least, is so disgusted by other bodies as well. The, the way that he discusses, the way that he describes Guillaume and Jacques and all the... Um, uh, you know, really disparaging language here, but he often refers, well, first of all, he always talks about how these boys are effeminate. And later on, when he sees Giovanni with Jacques after they've broken up, he's disgusted because yeah. of how because of how girlish she is. Um, he often uses the word fairy to describe these boys, right? And there's there's a sense of, and he always talks about his own masculinity. So he's describing people and himself in these kind of broader concepts and and terms, but not as actual human flesh and blood. So I think that the way that race perhaps is not explicitly discussed, uh, to your point, Chris, it makes total sense given the themes and given the people that we're dealing with here. You can't even get into race. We're not even talking about actual just mortal flesh. Yeah, yeah that's not, I, I think it's just, that's not what the book is about. Exactly. And the fact is that racial tensions were so intense on both sides of the Atlantic in different ways that you couldn't just write a book with a Black narrator and not 
have people interpret it as being about race. And I think that there's so many reviews, particularly older ones, slightly newer ones as well, that state or imply that this white narrator, the choice to have a white narrator was some kind of wish fulfillment, Mm -hmm. which is, again, making this a biographical thing rather than an artistic choice. And I think what we're arguing is that this is very much an artistic choice, a choice to make it tighter and to put a tighter focus on the themes of the book. But within the notion, within the the genre of Paris-based books, particularly written by people who are uh, not from Paris, I think that the autobiographical element usually is is one of the things which is selling them. And in fact, it was one of the interesting things reading this book for me was noticing how much the autobiographical element didn't necessarily play a part exactly. Like it's not just a, a thinly veiled description of his life here in Paris. It's a very deliberate decision to create an odious character. But, but at the same time, you, I think part of the appeal too is that you get a different Paris than the tourist Paris. You get a different culture within Paris itself that... I think maybe David would characterize as underground, certainly underground a bit by necessity. You know, the, he and Giovanni, I believe, do discuss that uh, homosexuality is a crime, you know, in, in, in the States. It's not here. And that's important for American readers to know because when we already know Giovanni's going to be executed by the state and we're like, oh, for, you know, for what? For being gay? We don't know. Um, and that kind of is just so tightly woven. But uh, I think the fact that it isn't bringing this exact same Paris in makes it less important that we know that the person has, the writer has direct experience. There are still hints of that Paris, though. I mean, like that kind of like particularly. Especially when he- with Hella. Uh, I was going to say, especially with with Sue, who he picks up in one of the bars in Montparnasse, like there there almost feels in that scene like we could be back in the time of the lost generation. All I was going to say that really reminded me of Hemingway, not in terms of the writing at all, but mm. the way that he meets her, kind of the the way that in Hemingway's fiction often whoever the main character is, the protagonist, will just happen upon people, right? Like, they'll be at one cafe, one bar, and it's the same people. And actually, the fact that he's always in the same, as he calls it, the same quarter is really interesting, too. Again, that feels a little bit Hemingway-esque. Like, you are always kind of going down the same three streets constantly. Yeah. That's it. And then, of course, Nation is so far from that in every sense. Yeah. Also, continue the trope of people not having jobs. I love how at no point does David think, should I get a job? Even so- though... <laughs> He's constantly just writing. To, he's just going to American Express and writing to his dad being like, and then he goes home to Giovanni who lost his actual job and just tells him, yeah, I wrote to my daddy, so it didn't really work out. Um, you, you couldn't get an under the table job anywhere, my dude? Come on. Yeah, I think there's a real way in which the the book rejects a lot of kind of easy labels that people would want to put on it. Even in defining David's sexuality, some critics in particular will classify David easily as gay, as a gay man. Others consider him bisexual because he has sex with women, although he doesn't seem to enjoy it. But he has sex with them and he has a relationship with a woman. And he actually, for the three days that they're around Paris, like they have this kind of playful and nice relationship. And you can kind of see how on the surface 
this is so much the easier choice because they can just be open and in public. Well, it also seems like having sex with a woman for David is kind of a proving ground. See, I knew I'm not like them because I can get it up and I can have sex with her. And the fact that they have sex every single night, it doesn't feel like it's because they're so passionate for each other, right? It feels like for him, it's just super important to make sure again and again that he can prove it with Sue as well, which is why he picks up, he picks her up in the first place, right? To kind of, I don't know, just know for himself, like, oh, I'm not like, the, I'm not like Jack. I'm not like Guillaume. I'm not like Giovanni. I'm not like that weak kind of man. I'm a man. I'm a masculine American man. And that's an American man as a cat, as, as a category that David keeps trying to shove himself into is also something that keeps coming up again and again. Well, and those are things that objectively apply to him that he doesn't feel like do. And this is another thing. Yeah, I don't think that there's any hint of bisexual desire in here. He may be a bisexual person who is just having a lot of issues coming to terms with what that means. But uh, there aren't labels in this book, and I think that that is for a reason. So let's set them aside and talk about... Sorry, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but but I completely agree with you. And I was thinking that one of the the tragedies of this book is that I think as as an artistic project, it's showing us again and again how these labels don't apply. But all the characters are so determined to have a label attached to them. They're the opposite. <laughs> of Every like Hella. I mean, Hella wants to be Mrs. Oh my God, Hella's whole conversation with Dave, where she's like, you know, I think that women are only really happy when they belong to a man. There I was in Spain, and I had no man who I belonged to. And you're going what? And she goes, you know, when we're married, don't worry. She's like, I'll still have ideas. I'll still real books. I'll still disagree with you. But she seems to be saying it'll be like in a sitcom marriage way where I'll lightly disagree with you. So you know that I'm Mm. a separate person, but inevitably I will, of course. But she she says then, but at least I'll know I'm a woman. Exactly. You know, it's like, she needs like, you like, yeah, no matter how terrible it is, then you can complain about being a woman, but you know, you are one. Exactly. And even when Giovanni is still working and David tries to like, you know, wash the dishes and clean up a little bit in the apartment, he's so afraid confronted by that you know and he, by the idea that he's the woman and exactly and later on he throws that in giovanni's face he's like you just want me to be the woman who you know the nice little domestic wife who cleans things up at home and giovanni's like no but it'd be nice if you picked up some shit you know because <laughs> i am actually working <laughs> well and that's the thing is that the, the there's a lot to pick up in his room yeah. like, to be fair <laughs> there's a messy room the lack of language is uh, a relief in some ways and is what allows David to explore to the extent that he does. It's what allows some of these cultures to exist, you know? Like, Guillaume is not advertising gay bar, you know, on the outside of his bar. It's a safety thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's no... David doesn't have language for a man who does the dishes. All they can think is in terms of the language that he already has, which is, this is woman. Yes. And so the lack of language is also a really limiting factor Mm -hmm. for him as well. Right. And his two states of being seem to be either a kind of bliss because he's not asked to make a decision or total cruelty. Um, So either he falls into these, like with Joey when he's younger, with Giovanni, with Hella to a certain extent, he seems to be happiest and really big air quotes are unhappiest, but he's least miserable when someone else is making decisions and he can kind of just go, well, I guess that's done. And then when that, when he's asked to make a decision, when he's asked to choose, he resorts to truly hideous behavior. Yeah. His default is absolutely fucked. Abusive. That's it. Yeah. Which is also a really interesting thing to do if you are trying to generalize, which I think the book is encouraging you not to do, mm-hmm. except, again, he really generalizes himself as white man, white American man mm-hmm. on that first page. Yeah. And it's like the one thing that I can take away from that is that there is this kind of just defaulting to cruelty. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that is generalization I'm not afraid to make. I think the text supports it. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry, I I was just um so while reading this book I um <laughs> decided to go on to uh our friend of the uh, friend of the pod uh <laughs> chat GPT. And I I asked it, write the plot of Giovanni's room, but give it a happy ending. <laughs> oh my god, oh my god, I'm so scared. Tell us. <laughs> As David struggles with his feelings for both Giovanni and Heather, he realises he cannot continue to deny his true self any longer. He breaks off his engagement with Heather and decides to pursue a relationship with Giovanni, despite the disapproval of those around them. With the support of a few close friends, David and Giovanni (laughs) are able to build a life together in Paris. They face challenges and obstacles, but their love for each other is unwavering. And then, you know, they go back to Italy and they're... (laughs) They take a piece of Paris with them in their heart. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. So this is such a rich rich text. I can only say that we've skimmed the surface here. And I'd really encourage everybody to read this. The thing I wanted to end with is just the observation that this was written at the same time as Nancy Mitford's The Blessing. And it really describes an entirely different Paris. And also an entirely different relationship to money, right? Because in Giovanni's room, money is so important. And and really, it's really important to show us that no matter how much or how little money you have, everyone is the saddest. <laughs> like It's Jack, just hard being in a human. Space. Exactly. Jacques has money. Guillaume have money, has money. They're miserable. Um, I loved slash hated, of course, but loved the passages where Hella and David are just roaming Europe, but they have so little money that they can't really do much, right? They can't hang out with the other, they can't really hang out with the other rich expatriates. They just go to the movies and then have like senseless mechanical sex every time David is like worried that maybe he can't have sex with a woman. It's just miserable. That's it. I also think that this book really might have been one of the first to examine issues of aging in the gay community because Jack and Guillaume are considered kind of, uh, David considers them certainly kind of over the hill and ridiculous, but really they're, I mean, Guillaume is fucked, but like, and fucked up um, in the way that he treats those around him. But Jack is just really kind of a lonely guy who just wants to help and not really like who, who will help for money, but it has a a kind of loneliness at his core. And it's not, it's it's not as simple as any way I want to describe him. Yeah. I mean, is it ever expressed as to actually how old they are? I was going to say, watch them be 38. I think they're in their (laughs) forties. I think because he says, I think they're in their forties or fifties. Cause at one point I believe it's Jack says I'm twice your age. Okay. 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 So uh, yeah. So yeah. not that old. Because yeah, Jacques is described as someone who, in as you as you were seeing, Rachel, there's such a loneliness to his character. He tries to basically buy love literally, and then when it doesn't work out, he is so hurt and wounded that he retreats into being stingy. But there's no, he doesn't seem to take things on a case by case basis. So even with uh, Giovanni, when he really needs money, he won't lend him money, presumably because he's really hurt that Giovanni's actually not falling in love with him. But then, of course, he completely, you know, he also helps to fuck over Giovanni. So there seems to be, again, a haphazard, almost like a child being cruel because he's just hurt all the time. And then he regrets it and then he tries to win people back with money and the same fucked up cycle continues again and again. And every single character in this book is lonely in some way or another. It's just alienated from others, just fundamentally. And it's really fascinating to see that taking place within a supposed community but because of the kind of subculture that they're forced into having this kind of underground nature it's 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 still isolated them from those around them exactly so i just say james baldwin 
go find Nancy Mitford, Rue Monsieur in the seventh. She, you guys will be delighted with each other. <laughs> Look, she might be horrible, but I have a feeling you could be horrible back if you wanted. And go destroy her. And you could write an essay that completely destroys her. So go fucking nuts, Jimmy. Love you. <laughs> And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. I wanted to start out with uh, David, Hella, and Giovanni, but it was too easy because clearly you'd marry Hella, fuck Giovanni, kill David, and that's exactly what David would do. So then who are you really? So instead this week... Just another example of what a good book it is because that's what I'd do. We're going to open it up and say the three entities from this book and James Baldwin's life more generally are Saint-Germain-de-Prés, New York City, and Saint-Paul-de-Vence, the southern city where Baldwin retired and where I'm assuming the southern part of this book takes place. Um, okay, so I think I have an answer. I would marry Saint-Germain-de-Prés, I would fuck New York City, and I would definitely kill something something in advance um, countryside this is pretty much what you do though because all, all year round you're in Paris that's it. then you spend summers in New York that's exactly it <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll go further Saint-Germain-de-Prés um, wealthy beautiful things beautiful gowns beautiful objects thus I can be kind of you know I can live at a style that I'm accustomed to I don't have to let down my standards New York City exciting fun never sleeps oh my god a whirlwind but exhausting can't marry that and something, something advanced, countryside. What the fuck am I going to do there? Banal. Fuck it. I mean, no, don't fuck it. Kill it. <laughs> there we go. See how soon you get invited back to the countryside. <laughs> and you know what? Fuck you, countryside. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> I think this is the, genuinely really, really tricky for me. But I'm going to I'm going to start off by saying, yeah, fuck New York City, because it's really exciting. You know, it's I mean, I I spent two weeks there that was about a week too long yep. um you know you have to pay eleven dollars for a sandwich which just um I, I couldn't get over which has nothing to do with um my life in the bedroom with new york city but anyway um it's... look if they were like do you want a sandwich and you were like yeah thank you and they were like that'll be eleven dollars that's also a problem actually i've changed my mind kill new york city for charging me eleven dollars for a sandwich and not to go into another sidebar but did you guys hear about the 31 dollar ham and cheese sandwich in new york uh. so i mean i'm just saying i mean prices have gone up eleven dollars that's a steal that's a oh, yeah yeah i just don't think that i don't think that me and new york are on the same wavelength at all so for that reason i'm gonna just do this kind of like boring conservative retiree kind of like you know thing where I'm going to fuck Saint Germain de Prey uh, because it's representative of of I don't know it's not even my favorite part of Paris actually this is why I'm finding this so difficult like let's make it let's say Saint Germain de Prey in the fifties <laughs> oh well hold on <laughs> uh -oh. buy cheap property there and fuck over millennials. <laughs> And now you own an Airbnb. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be where the expensive stationery stores are. Uh, I want to see, want to see the writing. <laughs> I want to go to the cinema. I mean, you don't want to do any of that stuff? Well, I mean, but you can do that anywhere in Paris, can't you? Like, No, but it's a different type of doing it in Saint-Germain. But I'm also in bed with Saint-Germain, so I don't know if I've got time for the stationery stores and the cinema. Oh, it's a shame. So you're going to marry Davinci? 
Yeah, I'm going to marry him. I am also going to marry him. Well, because it's down in Provence. I, I, In fact, I went to that area when I was a kid on a family holiday, um, <laughs> which seems like a weird reason to marry it. I wasn't um, going to say anything, but... But yeah, yeah it's, it's, um, it's beautiful. It's an amazing part of France. I think, you know, James Baldwin, he, he made the choice for a reason. He was clearly a man of like impeccable taste. And Am I? I've always you've always said I'm a man of impeccable taste. I, I mean, I have done. I, I have done. Guys, do you disagree on countryside? Yes, that's true. Um, no. <laughs> it seems it, it seems like the kind of place that I could uh, I could grow old with, you know, like, um, and it's it it's not so far away from Marseille, so I can always pop into Marseille every now and again. It's pretty far from Marseille. Is it? Yeah, Provence de Alpes-Côte d'Azur is on the east. Yeah, Marseille. Well, I mean, Marseille's in the centre. Yeah, all right. I mean, it's quite far from Marseille. It's close to Italy. It's close to, to Germany. Look, I I like a lot of things around there. I I you know I like the mountain. You know, apart from the scorpions, the scorpions suck. There are um, scorpions in yeah, the south. There are scorpions. That's why you keep little uh, bowls of lavender in your window to keep the scorpions away. I thought that was just a cute thing that the country folk did. No, no, it's to keep the scorpions away, and it smells nice, but not for a scorpion. <laughs> well, look, as a Scorpio, I say the more the better. <laughs> you don't really mean that, but no. surely. No, I don't. <laughs> Chris has also seen me in the country. <laughs> so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make my uh, you know, so that's uh Marie Saint Paul de Vence, fuck Saint Germain de Pre and kill New York City. I'm definitely killing New York. Just nobody needs it. You weren't there three hundred years ago. It's fine if you're not there anymore. Um, I mean, people save the people. Yes, um, I'm gonna marry Saint Germain because it's Saint Germain in the fifties. I buy up the cheap property. I live like a king. I know all the writers and the musicians and the artists. Juliette Greco and I are best friends. It's quite the life. I'm gonna have a yearly affair with Saint Paul de Mans, where I go for the summer. And uh, oh this is extremely French of you. <laughs> All I aspire to. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it. You know, I'll put the lavender bowls out. We don't need those. Rachel's perfect Paris life with her. Um... My Paris life. <laughs> <laughs> her life in the city and her little bit on the side in, in Provence. And isn't that what we all dream of? <laughs> <laughs> I want Rachel's answer. 